Welcome to the TikTok podcast sponsored by Tourette Ottawa. Listen in as your hosts Jimmy and Brandon discuss everything Tourette syndrome. You can show your support for the show by sharing it and most importantly, spreading awareness about Tourette syndrome. Before I jump into introducing today's guest, I want to remind you that the cure for Tourette syndrome is awareness. And the best way to do that and simultaneously support this podcast is to share it. Spread the word, generate awareness. You can send us an email at tiktokquestions at gmail.com. That's T-I-C-T-A-L-K questions at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us to discuss on the show. And remember, the TikTok podcast is available on YouTube in video format. So tune in at TikTok podcast on YouTube. I'd like to introduce Dr. James uh, Bresto, a clinical psychologist practicing at the Center of Pediatric Excellence uh, out of Ottawa. We are very excited to have you on, Doctor. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm really happy to be here. I appreciate the, uh, the invite. Well, we're looking forward to having someone who's formally educated and who can actually speak from the science side of things instead of us uh, meatheads just, just talking off a of personal experience. So we're looking forward uh, to it. Uh, we're probably yeah. all, all experts then. <laughs> you guys have your side of it, I have mine too, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we appreciate you being here. And uh, Jimmy, do you want to start it off? Absolutely. So I know I know you work with, with individuals with tick disorders and Tourette's, and we're going to get to that. But I want to talk a little bit about you first so we can get, get a little context behind things. And, you know, why did you get into, into the field that you're currently in as a clinical psychologist? Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things, uh, you know, looking back, like, you know, always wanted to help people. So that's been part of like something I cared about. And, uh, but sometimes you go off course and find your way back. So, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, I remember we had a school, a school assignment, we had to kind of write up like, you know, what you want to do when you're older and I, I want to help kids or be an archeologist. Uh, so, I mean, that's been kind of something I've always found I'd like to do. And then that's what you put to that question. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just a kid. So I didn't know, I didn't become an archeologist, but, uh, yeah. And then as I was going through, you know, life, um, like, like most people have their own struggles in different ways and, you know, through all that, just figured out, you know, I just want to help other people with whatever it is. And you know, got distracted in my late teens, did all other type of jobs, worked construction, you know, uh, went to college for a bit, didn't really figure it out until, you know, finally I took a psychology course because I was kind of bored, not knowing where to go, loved it. So I thought, okay, let me try this out, went to university, loved learning about it, and kind of took off from there. Wow. And, and so where did you decide, when did you decide that um, tick disorders was something that that you wanted to specialize in? Yeah, great question. So um, part of what I, I think it's part of the give a little context around that. So, you know, despite doing 10 plus years of university, uh, Tourette syndrome and tics barely came up, if at all. Um, I had one professor in my undergrad years that was kind of interested in it and kind of suggested I do like a side project on it, just like reading research, putting stuff together. So I did that and enjoyed doing that. And then, you know, didn't think about Tourette's for another probably five years because it's just not taught something that's taught to like clinical psychologists, which is what I am in any university. And, like, so did a you have a, a lecture dedicated to Tourette's syndrome or to tic disorders or was it like a, a class? 
Yeah, so nothing like other than in my undergrad where it was just like a class where every week someone would go on about a different topic, right? They present in front of the class and do that. And it just so happens my prof said, I think you do good talking about Tourette's because he knew I was interested in like clinical issues. And so I did that. It was more like a neurobiology class of getting deep in like, you know, neurotransmitters, brain structure, right. stuff like that. Yeah, so that was interesting. But as I said, like the rest of my university career, nothing, right? It's not even mentioned in most uh, programs, as far as I know, a couple exceptions down in the States, probably. And and we do talk about that in uh, the previous episodes of the podcast. Like, we wondered about what type of training um, professionals got, because it, uh, for example, uh, my, when I was diagnosed, my doctor actually told me it was something completely different and mm. tried to steer me away from a uh, Tourette syndrome diagnosis. And I think it was just maybe because a lack of uh, training or education on that. Um, yeah. So, so after you, uh, you, you went that way, how did the training change? Did the training change? Did you get, get into a certain, um, certain research project that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's interesting how life kind of brings you in directions, takes you back. So when I graduated, um, what, it was 2011, 2012 that I got my PhD. Um, I went into private practice because I wanted to be back here in Ottawa and there weren't many hospital jobs at that time. So I was just seeing a lot of people and, uh, you know, I do assessments for a variety of issues, learning disabilities, ADHD, you know, things along those lines, autism, spectrum disorders. Uh, but I was also doing a lot of therapy for with a lot of youth in particular. I work with adults as well. And I had a youth that came to see me and I think at that time, maybe it was like nine or 10. And he's like, you know, him and his parent came in, like I have Tourette's and, you know, this is what's going on. And, you know, we're looking for help. And I was like, I don't even know what to do here, right? Like, you know, they teach me, taught me how to, you know, help people with anxiety, depression, things along those lines. But I was like, I don't know what to do. Um, so I think I've worked on some other issues with them and then eventually popped up in my email training on how to treat Tourette syndrome in Niagara Falls. I went to a workshop there that was a two day, two, three day workshop and kind of taught myself from there, did a bunch more reading. I kind of had some of the background knowledge um, and then just started doing a lot of the the therapy, CBIT, Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks, like yeah. just in my, my own practice. Wow. So I, mean, I definitely have a lot of questions about that, but there's a bit of a gap there. So undergrad, that was that yeah. course that you did the presentation about Tourette's. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And then you had your, 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 what did you do an MA PhD combined kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. It was a couple of years. Yeah. So, so what did you, what did you study during that, during that time? Was it, was it, was there anything specified towards sick disorders of Tourette's or was it more broad? Yeah. So you know, nothing, I can, I can definitely, definitively say there's nothing around tick disorders or Tourette's at all. I mean, usually what they teach you, you know, they teach you how to do assessments around most mental health issues. Um, and then they treat you how, teach you how to, you know, treat the most common types of things like anxiety, depression, trauma, right? You know, kind of OCD, like the big ones that population-wise yeah. are pretty big. But 100%. Yeah, nothing tick-related whatsoever. Cool. So, so once you started um, working with, I guess, children, youth with Tourette's, um, people with Tourette's, what did you, uh, did you, did you, what did you notice um, first off about the treatment or how, uh, how it was working? If, 
did you did you notice more people um, that you were able to diagnose more people than than before, and maybe you realized that that they had it that you that you didn't know that before. Yeah, so you know it's so interesting that you start seeing it more and more once you educate yourself around this, right? Um, and so I did notice it more and more, and I even you know once I did the training and I started like getting more into the knowledge and trying to teach myself more about this, you know you start to pick it up, right? And you know for example, you know as the two of you may well know, right? Like there's a whole big overlap in OCD and Tourette um, and tick disorders in general. And so you know, some people are misdiagnosed with OCD, right? And they have Tourette's and there's a lot of other things out there, right? ADHD um, and tick disorders and Tourette's, right? And, you know, teasing apart's hard, like it's not easy work, but unless you know about it, you, you wouldn't pick it up. You probably label it as something else or, you know, if it's really something of the ordinary for psychologists, they typically refer to a neurologist or you know family doctor, and then their level of training. I mean, who knows, right? Like, mm -hmm. It's up there. I mean, some are really really knowledgeable. Uh, we're lucky here in Ottawa; we have a couple like expert neurologists that cover Tourette syndrome, so that's good. But a lot are unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Are you yeah. able to? Are you able to speak uh, to? This is kind of getting off course a little bit, but speak to the actual like. Jimmy and I talked about like the actual causes of it and or like or like the actual brain functions that are um, you know working in a way to cause this and we we don't know and yeah. are you able to speak to that at all or is that something that's yeah I'm happy to talk about that I mean I don't want to get too geeky because I mean I love this stuff but not, you know not everyone's into it um, so, mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's a couple of things that we think are going on and, you know, we, there's been some good studies using MRI, uh, you know, equipment and things like that. And, um, you know, basically what we think is going on is, is the part of the brain called the basal ganglia. So basal ganglia is kind of this uh, nut shaped uh, part of our brain that is really responsible for acting like a, you know, basically like a traffic it determines when signals should leave the brain and go out through the body, when they should be stopped or when they should be slowed down. And so what we think is going on is that for whatever reason, who knows why, like the exact, you know, why that brain structure is acting a little bit differently, we don't know. I mean, everyone's brain is different in general, right? So, you know, it could just be natural. We think there's some genetic contribution because there's, you know, higher rates of ticks than individuals who have a father or, or mother biologically who have ticks, right? Right. It's largely considered hereditary. It's exactly. close, yeah. right? Huge genetic component to it. Now, I mean, there's other things. So there's certainly people out there whose parents might not have ticks and they do, and who knows why, right? Like it could be a million different things that won't, we probably won't ever 100% know. What we do know is that basal ganglia, for some reason, is just being a little bit different. So if you think of it as like that traffic like analogy, what's happening is the front or the motor cortex, the part of the brain here that kind of is constantly sending out signals. Um, it's usually stopped by that basal ganglia. So certain signals that shouldn't come out, red light goes on, they stop and they just don't go through. For some reason, the light's flickering, some of those signals go through, keep off ticks. And I mean, that's part of the biology. Um, I mean, the other part is we know that um, to a certain extent in certain situations, certain environments, ticks don't happen. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, I'm not sure if the two of you have experienced that, but you know, I worked with oh, some yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think we both have like any, any state of, of deep focus, you know, we, yeah. we both play guitar, 
we both oh, have a lot yeah. of different interests like Likewise. sports like sometimes we're just deep at least you know Brandon, you can speak on this after but but we said this a bunch on the podcast where, where any any state where you're almost just completely present the ticks yeah. the ticks kind of you know they, they dissolve yeah so there's something going on there so there's other you know brain systems involved somewhat the other thing is um the frontal cortex so the part of our brain that does organization planning um kind of that more you know we call it executive functioning skills you might have heard about that too kind of the executive of the brain that kind of directs behavior and what we do so there's something going on there because for some people with conscious control and again two of you might have experienced this to varying extents so tick suppression can happen people can in a way stop a tick from happening through conscious effort and mm -hmm. often it's accompanied with a lot of discomfort both in internal and external um, so there's something going on with the frontal cortex where it can kind of put the brakes on that part of the brain in certain situations, depending on the severity and what's going on too. Right. So it's that combination. And then I guess the other thing is the environment, which of course impacts the brain. So all these environmental things, which for a hundred different reasons, again, might exacerbate ticks coming out because they're interacting with those brain systems in different ways or suppress them. And then I also wonder why so many, um, so many other conditions are associated with Tourette syndrome. Like, um, I mean, I guess I understand why depression or anxiety might be just yeah. because of the ticks in society as it is, but for OCD and, and different conditions like that, is that just completely unknown why that would be related? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and this is the thing, I mean, real solid research into the biology of Tourette's is, you know, probably only about, you know, 20 years old mm -hmm. in terms of like really looking into those things. The, the hypotheses, the things that people are thinking about is, um, we know neurotransmitters in particular, dopamine is heavily involved in some respects uh, to Tourette's, but also other things like ADHD, for example. Um, so there could be certainly similarities in those nervous systems or how those chemicals are interacting together or working that contribute right. to that. It'd be also, tough to narrow down what dopamine does to Tourette's because dopamine affects everything, right? It yeah. does. Yeah. And yeah. Pe people talk about excess dopamine or heightened sensitivity to dopamine. Yeah. We don't know exactly. And you know, hopefully we will soon. Yeah. Um, the other thing you reminded me though, uh, the basal ganglia and OCD, I mean, we know that there's something also going on there in OCD with or without ticks. So part of what the basal ganglia do does is also habitual type uh, thinking or behaviors, right? It, it sometimes acts as like, you know, that autopilot for us. And so there's something going on there in OCD that involves the basal ganglia that has similar features. So it might be something, you know, with that structure of the brain that again is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And and the, so we get those, we call them comorbidities, right? Like two right, right, kind of right. overlapping, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so Jimmy, do you, do you have any questions? Oh, I mean, I got a thousand. Before, yeah, before, <laughs> but I don't want to take over. I have so many too. Go so. for it, man. Go for it. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask about um, so more of in more of your clinical practice and when you actually have uh, let's say a a ten year old comes to you uh, for help. Yeah. How do you so do you diagnose the Tourette syndrome yourself? Yeah. So. Um, I, I, I do, 
Um, but I typically, if that's the primary thing they're coming to see me about, I'll do the workup. I'll do, um, you know, all the questionnaires and measures that we use. I think I saw on one of your podcasts, you had pulled out one out and yeah. tried to use them. Yeah, I mean, which is all good. Um, so I, I do those and I can, I, I'm usually like 99% certain. So all, what I'll usually do is I'll make the diagnosis, but we can make provisional diagnosis. So provisional diagnosis are saying, look, I'm almost certain this is what it is, um, but there's some reason I might have a doubt. So what I usually do would make that provisional diagnosis and then I would make a strong recommendation to the family doctor, you know, make a referral to neurology, which would usually go to the CHEO here in Ottawa or whichever department to have a specialist neurologist confirm. And the reason I do that is because there's a couple other disorders out there that look very similar, but are a little bit different and are more in the realm of neurology. So there are stereotype movement behaviors. Actually, I'll have a long list, half of which I can't even pronounce that are out there. <laughs> But, you know, I, I'm pretty good at spotting them and almost certain all the time. And I haven't been wrong yet. And, you know, I probably will be at some point. No one's perfect. But um, I, I just feel that neurologist is probably the best person to confirm the diagnosis that I make and then kind of decide what they want to do from there, but also give the parents the opportunity to discuss the medical part of treatment. Because I can talk about the psychological behavioral interventions, but, you know, neurologists are in the best position to at least let people know what their options are in that domain, that, you know, I don't do medication at all. So mm -hmm. I would like, I understand the medications, what's out there, but I kind of leave them to do that part. Mm -hmm. So we've, uh, we've talked about this. So, you know, you're, you're on the clinical psychology side, kind of the brain, the brain uh, mechanic in terms of like helping people with their individual problems and sorting through it, not, not using medication. And then the, the neuro, the neurology side, uh, they might be more inclined. Well, they will probably, you know, prescribe medication, yeah. uh, look into different therapies like that. I got diagnosed at CHEO by Dr. Doja in Ottawa gotcha. and um, when I was 10. And I, it was mostly medications for me, um, but my, my symptoms didn't improve until uh, there, I, didn't, I didn't go to a clinical psychologist for my Tourette's, but there were similar things happening in my brain and that I was doing in my life life mm. to improve it that were that would that would have probably occurred if i had also went to a, a clinical psychologist so we brandon and i talk about this it's almost like tourette's is a well it is essentially because there's not a whole lot of science behind it it's it's there, there is but there's not it's it's not like you can you can fix it 100 percent and tell me 100 percent where it comes from and it's different for everybody so we we kind of describe it a little bit as a soft science where like you have to tailor your approach uh differently to to everybody um it's just it's interesting Absolutely. to hear you say to hear you say that because i can imagine after somebody goes to chio for for um neurology or wherever and then they, they could circle back and say okay i have this diagnosis let's work on it exactly. and and so how do you um begin that um journey with with your patient when they have to uh, because for me, I don't know if you know, um, if, if you listen to the podcast, but my story, I was diagnosed when I was in um, university. Oh, so no. I went through my whole childhood without knowing. I was told a bunch of different things. But then in university is when I found out and I actually didn't get treatment until my early 20s. And but right when I found out, I immediately felt that I was going through a, an, like an identity crisis. Yeah. And I imagine that children or you know, younger uh, adolescents get hearing this, they feel that way too. And so how do you navigate that with them? Yeah, so I think 
you know, once individuals do come back, and they often do, if I, oftentimes actually, one, one, when they're waiting the six months to see the neurologist, I often start working with them in the meantime, because, you know, I'm pretty sure what they're dealing with. I let them know, you know, I can't be 100% sure, but looks like this. One of the first things, and I spend a lot of time doing this, is the education piece, right? So just providing that education. Knowledge is power, I think. So, you know, talking about the nervous system, what's going on, how we understand ticks. I have like slides and images that I'll go through with some of the kids I work with, or adults, because we, I mean, I've been in that same position where I've had an adult come to me and, you know, they brought this up and I'm like, okay, well, let, let's dig into it and figure it out. And it ends up being Tourette's. So, you know, depending on the individual, their age, um, I'll, I'll always start with just trying to like give that education around it. And the other part that I really want to usually hit right at the beginning, but also throughout the work I do with them is, you know, that, that self-advocacy part of things, the importance of, you know, being able to speak up, the importance of parents, you know, talking to teachers, writing letters to teachers if they're, you know, ignore the ticks and, you know, talk to me if you have a problem with it. Um, but also that, you know, people know how to communicate that to other people because, you know, there's a lot of people running out there and, um, oh, one of the other things I didn't mention. So my daughter has Tourette's. I, oh. it was funny after I did all my training, um, started working with Tourette's syndrome. I was hanging out in my kitchen one day and I heard my daughter doing <clears> throat, 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 throat clearing tick, right? And then I kept going and then it got severe. And then there's some other motor ticks that flared up. And, you know, three years after I did my Tourette training, you know, she had, she got formally diagnosed wow. with Tourette's as well. Wow. Yeah. So that, uh, the reason I brought that up was that advocacy piece, right? I, mm -hmm. I've been there with my daughter. I've had her come home crying because, you know, her teacher was like giving her heck because she has a tick that was disturbing the class, right? Yeah. So I think, first of all, normalizing, educating kids and adults about, you know, this is, this is what's going on. We think it's kind of neurological, but there's all these other things going on. I also try to emphasize like the, you know, I have a hard time calling Tourette's like a disorder. I mean, it's a, a brain difference and we all have brain differences and it just comes out in different ways for all of us, right? I mean, I guess, you know, it, it, the reason we label it disorder is because it causes difficulty in day-to-day -day mm -hmm. life, right? So I guess that's where that mm -hmm. comes from. But I, I just like to talk about it as a brain difference. And then once, once individuals have that, we figure out what we need to do for treatment. Now, that might be working on the tick, but a lot, given those comorbidities, often it's not. Um, mm -hmm. Oftentimes, you know, it might be anxiety that we're working on first or OCD. Um, it depends how much the ticks are impacting the person. And there's also sometimes a difference between, you know, when I work with children, the child's perspective on the ticks and if they want to work on them and the parents. So yeah. I sometimes see that where there might be a parent that's like, you know, we need to get this under control. We need to do something. I, you know, might look at the nine, 10 year old kid and say, you know, how much do you want to work on this? Let's say zero means your ticks don't bug you at all. 10 means they're the most annoying thing ever and you want to get rid of them. Where are you at? It's surprising how many times I get like numbers under four. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what we, we were looking at some research a couple of weeks ago, a couple episodes ago. And we, that, and we, what we found um, was that the easier the child deals with it and the more that they're able to just engage in, in, regular friendships and and be open about everything then as they get older and, and approach adolescence their ticks kind of go away more often than if it's if it's suppressed then it kind of continues on longer yeah so it's, it seems that the um, treatment and just even having the option and to talk about it seems to make a huge difference um, with the with the outcome for the yeah. child. 
It really can. And like trying to minimize that stress around it as well, like is super important because we know, you know, some of the, the triggers for ramping up in frequency and severity of ticks, stressors, uh, you know, mood difficulties, you know, and, and, and then all everything else that's so individual to the, that person and what they're kind of exacerbating things are and, and what they aren't. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I yeah, have, a, I have because, another, go ahead, Jerry. I was going to say, it's funny because we, we talk about this every episode, we mentioned this at least once and it's, it's, like every every situation with threats is different, but you can you can say that about every single person mm. on on planet Earth. Yeah. And then you like the way that you deal with threats, at least as far as as we know, is the same. Well, not the same, but it's there's ways that you can deal with with general cognitive like anxiety and depression and you know OCD, and you can con not control it, but you can effectively work on it through different ways of conscious practice you know like even physical exercise and, mm -hmm. and and nutrition and and talking to people and the more you talk about it the less weight it has and then you can uh advocate for yourself like you're talking about and and one thing that that kevin smith who's a, a great member of our executive uh phd candidate he um he's the way he verbalizes his his Tourette's is he says I drive a car I drink water I have Tourette's and then you know what I mean that's that's kind of his his yeah. casualness that he approaches it with and if you can get to that point there's a good chance you're going to have a more manageable perspective on everything right absolutely yeah and I, I think that's so important um, and that's why you know when I do that work I'm educating parents too because one of the things that and I, I'm guilty of this I really don't want to come down like I'm hammering on parents I'm not um, but you know, when a parent sees their child having tics, especially if they if they're uncomfortable or painful, you know, a good parent does what every good parent would, right? They want to get rid of the problem. They want to soothe the child. They want to, you know, if they got a throat tic, then you know, give them lozenges or ice cream to help soothe their their tics. I get all that, but the other side of it is we have to remember that that part of the brain that I talked about, that basal ganglia, is exceptionally sensitive to rewards and punishment. So if kids are getting, you know, punished because they're having tics, they're gonna have more tics. Um, uh, if they're okay. getting rewarded for having tics, it can actually ramp it up. So I mean, I was guilty of that. I, you know, there've been times where, oh, you know, giving a hot like honey, sweet honey drink to my daughter when her tics were flaring up and uh, we were still trying to figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was coming from a good place as a dad, but you know, in retrospect, like, oh well, you know, I might have ramped them up a little bit because that part of the brain was like, when I tic, I get sweet honey drinks right I didn't know that I didn't know about that um that the reward part of it to be uh, honest I, I I thought about it only from the more stressed I got the more more I would tick I didn't realize that it, it would go the same the other way that's it, it interesting can, yeah and so, I never you thought know, about that part of what I do when I when I'm doing that work too is and it's always a bit of a balancing act, right? But I, we need to be aware of that because there can be inadvertent things that come up. So, you know, let, let's think of a situation like in a school, like someone who's struggling hates math. And so they hate math, their ticks flare up and, you know, the teacher gets frustrated, sends them to the library where they can go doodle, do whatever they want. Like, you know, what will happen? Well, next time that kid's in math class, I can almost guarantee that the ticks will ramp up even higher than before because, again, got out of a bad situation, felt some relief, and the brain likes mm -hmm. that. 
and it's never conscious or like manipulative or anything like that i'm not saying that at all it's right just what that part of the brain does huh. so so actually what you just said kind of leads me to my next uh the next question i had which was about um stigma and just the general perception of Tourette syndrome in the public like jimmy and i talk about this a lot where it's um it seems like most people just think that it's um, yelling swear words out, out controllably. And, um, and we talk about, you know, people make really bad jokes about it, comedians and in movies and whatever. And it's really not re reflective of the majority of, yeah. uh, of people with Tourette's. So what do you, what do you think about the overall, like the general stigma? How do you, how do we go about, fixing that and and kind of like what what jimmy and i want to do is kind of make tourette syndrome on the same like playing field as you know uh depression and yeah. and like think about it as a mental illness maybe uh or mental you know at least mental health rather yeah. than rather than something that we can joke about or, or people yeah. can joke about yeah i hear that um we have we have a ways to go as the two of you obviously know we you know you wouldn't be trying to get word out there and help people build up that awareness um, and it needs to go to a couple of different levels, right? So, I mean, first is just the general public. They need to know more and they need to get the real facts as opposed to, you know, what you'd see on TV, which, or, you know, wherever, which is, is not what most people with threats would come across as. Um, so, I mean, there's just that, right? Like just educating people. But the other thing, it also has to be with the professionals, right? Like it, it it's, it's terrible that I'm one of three psychologists, maybe four, um, here in a city of a million people that has expertise in treating it, right? Like, what's that about? Um, so the professionals really need to learn more, and that can happen a bunch of different ways. Um, things I'm working on, uh, I just did a, like a couple-hour workshop a few months ago with all the, well, not all, but like, you know, open all the psychologists in the Ottawa area talking about what tick disorders are, how they're assessed, how they're treated. That's one avenue I'm going. Um, I'm also training other psychologists across Canada. So myself um, and one of the other psychologists in Canada, Kim Edwards, uh, who also is really involved in the tick work, are making a big effort to do training sessions across Canada at least once a year, hopefully a couple times wow. a year in different places. Fantastic. Yeah, just to get other, and it doesn't just have to be psychologists, right? Psychologists, nurses, occupational therapists, anyone that's like a registered health professional can learn to do the CBIT part of things. But when we teach- Or at them, least like someone, if someone sees it somewhere along the line, they can just say, oh, I think, I think I know what that is. Anything. And then that's why people with Tourette's, they recognize it more because you see it, like, you know, you know, yeah. that guy has Tourette's for sure or a tick disorder, right? And yeah. so if, if people can get on that level, sorry to derail you. No, 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 you're totally right. Like, that, that's it. And so we're trying to get things out and, you know, whatever I can do to help you, you or anyone else, you know, has any other ideas. But we got to train the professionals, right? Um, you know, even medical doctors aren't always all that knowledgeable because, uh, again, it's not part of their training unless they've sought out specialized training, they might have had, like it mentioned, 10 minutes in the class and then moved on, right? And that's mm -hmm. it. So I feel like the statistics say that it's about 1% of, of people have Tourette syndrome. And I feel like that's a high enough number for it to be uh, more, I guess, taught in, in medical school or, you know, whatever type of 
training you're getting like is is that is that not is it falling through the cracks in that sense like yeah that's a really good point right if one in a hundred people um you know uh had something like i don't know something more rare like a rare genetic disorder would be all over it and everyone would know mm -hmm. so yeah it, you know, and I think part of that is also like the spectrum of severity you see in tick disorders, where a lot of them, you know, historically have gone under the radar because they are, they can be fairly discreet. And, you know, what's usually gotten attention is probably like, you know, the upper, you know, five or 10% of people with Tourette's or tick disorder, where they're so severe that, you know, it, it's so obvious that like people are like, oh, that's what Tourette's mm -hmm. is, right? They don't understand mm -hmm. that there's all these subtle varieties and, and then it's going along those lines. So mm -hmm. yeah, it should be up there more. I think we're getting better. Um, you know, uh, I work with physicians at my clinic too, and they they're very educated on it. And uh, so you know, we're we're getting there. It's still, that's really good. Good. it's good news. It's good news that you guys are working um, toward it. Like that's promising for sure. I also have another question uh, more about your the clinical side. Um, what kind of ticks do you normally see in um, in the I guess the the children or the adolescents that come in to see you? Like, what are the most common ticks that you see? Yeah, I mean, it's all over the place. There's such a variety of them. Um, I actually I don't have it in front of me. I should I've got a table somewhere. With, talks about the percentage and how much of the different ones that are out there which would show up uh i mean just off the top of my head like you know what i frequently see eye blinking um mm. the nose scrunching one can be there quite often uh often you know head shoulder neck ones mm. i mean these are the most obvious ones that i would maybe pick up more readily right away but it's interesting because when i do those interviews i you know part of what i do is like okay let's talk about all the different takes and create a list of them and create a list of how severe they are. And, you know, even though I've been doing this for a while now, I always miss them, right? And mm -hmm. then I'll hear, oh, well, I've got an ankle tick or I've got a one where I rub my knees together or things like that. So I think what I probably pick up on most are the facial head and shoulder ones. Um, but mm -hmm. when I go into it, there's always like these other discrete ones. And then if we're, we're kind of taking it at a different level, oftentimes there can be mental ticks as well, right? Some people describe those. And, they're a little bit different. They kind of have an OCD quality, but also seem quite ticket-like. So it's right. funny because Brandon and I, like, as we were going through the diagnosis process of, of one another, and I was thinking about things and having conversations with people in my in my personal life, and and for like not even realizing ticks that I have. Like, mm. even as you were saying that, I did one of the ticks that I do in my hip, where I torque my hip a little bit, like I'm mm. digging into the ground with okay. my foot. And I feel like a hip flexor stretch. And that's a, that's a tick that I do. And I just do it all the time. And I don't even realize it. I'm just sitting in the chair. I just move my knee slightly to the left and no one can see, but that's a tick. Yeah. But when you were, um, yeah, when you, when you were talking about the, the, the P, the three components of, of, uh, people that can help with the advocacy public professional, I think there's another P in there and that's the, the personal level. And in, mm. in the individual with Tourette's, you know, a big part of it is, is um, the people with Tourette's actually coming out and, and saying, I have Tourette's. These are what happens. This is what I do. It's a part of me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And, you know, it'd be the people with Tourette's and parents too, right? So, um, you know, 
I, since my daughter was diagnosed, she advocates for herself, right? She'll have kids that come up and say, you know, why are you doing that? And she'll tell them, oh, well, it's because I have ticks and it's, you know, it's a condition and it's just like a habit and that's what it is. And, you know, most kids will be like, oh, okay. Um, you know, once in a while she'll get that, oh, ticks like the bug. And she'll mm. have to say, no, yeah. it's not yeah. that kind of tick. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, starting people off early, getting comfortable with it and putting it out there mm. is the right thing to do. And then parents do have to have their role to do, right? Every year um, until COVID hit anyways, like I would write a letter to her teachers and say, here's what Tourette syndrome is. If you see any ticks, please don't pay any attention to them. If you become disruptive, please talk to me about them. Mm. And, you know, yeah so yeah it's 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 almost like it's weird like you were saying about sometimes the the kids just don't even want to address them or or they don't care about them and it's more the parents it's almost like sometimes just being aware of them but ignoring them could be the best way to just have them kind of take their own course and and go away like not putting it so much attention to them and stressing the, the child out about them and focusing everything on it like sometimes it's just like live you know just be you and yeah. and it, you know this is what it is in case someone asks but just just go ahead just don't worry about it absolutely and Brandon you're reminding me of a couple other things I always chat with uh, people when we're kind of talking about that diagnosis is that you know 20 percent of children will have ticks at some point now that doesn't necessarily necessarily translate into tick disorder or Tourette's it can um, but you know, it's, it's the frequency of them. So there's something going on in the developing brain where one out of five kids will have some kind of tick throughout their childhood. Now for most individuals who move on to develop like those more significant tick disorders, um, the peak age is kind of in those middle age school years. And then towards the end, uh, towards adulthood, oftentimes the severity and frequency go down, maybe not, and don't necessarily disappear, although they do in the you know, 20 or 30% of people, um, but they can improve. So sometimes like doing treatment or, you know, as you know, like, you know, a lot of the medications for, for tick disorders are pretty heavy duty antipsychotic medications, with tons of side effects. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So it's not bugging a kid. If it's not, you know, causing a lot of tension or it's not causing a lot of pain, sometimes the right thing is to just, you know, let's wait and see how it goes. Um, because, you know, there's a high likelihood it might just go away on its own and not, and then and if we exacerbate it, who knows, maybe it'll ramp up. You can more. pretty much guarantee that medication is going to knock you out. <laughs> yeah. At least from my perspective. Like I, I, yeah, yeah. For sure. And I mean, I, I get it. For some people, it's the right answer. If their ticks are like, you know, causing bone decay and things like that, or, you know, I mean, I've worked with some kids that you know, probably couldn't get through five minutes without a tick and so they're in constant pain so like there's room for it for the right people but you know not necessarily and it that also goes for the behavioral therapy and i part of the reason i do that scaling like how much you want to work on this is because when i do that work you know there's tons and tons of practice right it's coming to see me for an hour a week it's doing 30 minutes of practice three times a week and you know learning different skills and practicing them if the motivation's not there, there's no way a kid's going to do that, right? Who yeah. would? And I wouldn't even want to do something like that for that long. Um, Are you able to explain a little bit about what that um, CBIT um, treatment or therapy is like? Not necessarily getting right into the details, but just a general overview of it. 
Yeah, for sure. Let me. Um, so it, it's kind of a stage-based intervention. Um, so typically, it's done over the course of like eight or nine sessions. Um, that's presuming like there's been an assessment and a diagnosis already. Now, if that's being done, um, you know, really the stages are education and advocacy. So, you know, getting that knowledge around the neurobiology behind it, um, talking a little bit more about like how to explain this to other people. So that's just stage one. And that on its own sometimes can bring down the takes to be like, oh, that's what's going on. And, you know, it's not something wrong with me. It's like my brain works differently. And that's what it is. Um, and then the advocacy can bring things down. Once we do that, we also do what we call um, more of a functional analysis, which is a super techie term. But basically, that's where we look at those, like, what are the things surrounding ticks that can be contributing them, and can we do anything about that? So, if you think back to that math example, well, you know, maybe a couple of things can be done about that. Maybe you know, the kid isn't asked to leave the class. Maybe they're if they have to leave the class, they can find a comfortable place and do their math homework in a quieter place. Or maybe we can build up the relationship they have with the teacher so the teacher's not kind of sending them out of class. So that's kind of, once we do the education, we just look at the environment and say, okay, are there things that can be tweaked there? Sometimes that can make a big difference on its own. Or if you run into things like, you know, the example I gave with the honey drink, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. Maybe, you know, I should have, once her takes have kind of subsided, then gone seen her and given her a warm drink and she can get at that point. So there's not that close connection between the two. Not the reinforcement. Yeah. Exactly. Then we get to actually try to give people a degree of control over the tests. So how we do that, we first work with them to build up recognition of that urge um, that happens before the tick. That, uh, and that's different for everyone. So people have like a really high awareness, okay, I'm gonna have a tick. Other people have no awareness um, of it. And sometimes it takes a little bit of practice to build up that awareness. Uh, so once people have that awareness, they, they can recognize when that tick's gonna happen. I have a bunch of ways to do that with people. We then get them to practice what we call a competing response or when they're working with kids, a tick buster. So a tick buster is something an individual can do that is basically incompatible with the tick. So usually we have a couple of rules around that. We want whatever the tick buster is to be, um, you know, not allow the tick to happen. So something you can do with your body that stops the tick from being put out there. We want it to be something that can be done for a certain period of time. So, you know, something that can be done for 30 seconds to a minute or until like that urge to do the tick can go away. And the third thing is the tick has to be less, or the, sorry, the uh, tick buster has to be less obvious, less painful than whatever the tick is, right? So we want to mm. make it something that's more comfortable, draw less attention, cause less discomfort. Yeah, or else there wouldn't really be a point in busting the tick if yeah. it was less disruptive, yeah. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, ticks can create new ticks, right? Sometimes that can happen too. So you mm -hmm. really want to make sure that we're kind of following those rules and they're being implemented. Once we have the tick cluster, and this is where the work goes in, there's practice, 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 practice. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to train that part of the brain that when those signals come, we don't do whatever the tick is, we do whatever the tick cluster is instead. And so you know, like most things, our brain really likes practice and learn new things and to unlearn or strengthen another connection, we have to kind of have that tick buster, that competing response to kind of compete with that tick uh, coming through. And so that's where, you know, reoccurring practice has to happen, has to happen frequently. And once one tick is mastered, we move on to the next one, usually starting with the most inconvenient 
pain inducing tick and then moving on to the, you know, whichever one's next on that list. Mm -hmm. And how effective do you find that to be? Yeah, that's a really important question. It's also something I always am really clear from the get-go with people before we start like talking about how often we see each other and et cetera, et cetera. The research shows that we're looking at about someone who completes the entire program, presuming they do the practice and they're engaged. Somewhere, most of the studies show that 50% of people after going through those sessions will show significant improvements in the frequency and severity of their tics. A very small percentage, and it's extremely small, like will have no more ticks after that or be able to exert control over it. But that that should never be an expectation for treatment right. because it's so unlikely yeah. and it's more likely to fluke. How I kind of think of it is at least 50% of people, well, I'll get into that in a second, at least 50% of people should have a lot more control over their ticks by the time they've gone through the program. I actually think it's usually quite a bit higher than that. And the reason is the initial research that they did looking at how how CBIT, how effective CBIT is, a lot of it was done with people who were trainees. So it would have been people in grad school who maybe the first person they were seeing uh, was trying to use this treatment. So it wasn't someone you know who's been doing it for years and years. What they would do is grab a bunch of people that were interested, they train them how to do CBIT, and then they started the research study. They get them seeing patients and working. Mm -hmm. So right. Experience, but you know, but in, in your in your um in your experience, you find that it's a little bit more, it's, it's at least more than 50%. I think that that's great result, to be honest. Yeah, you it's know, uh, I, I, I should probably keep statistics on it. Um, I'd probably say probably closer to 75% in my practice, but, and that's not, I don't think that's because I'm an exceptionally skilled therapist. I think it's because I'm very honest and upfront with people about, A, should they be doing the treatment at this time? And I'm also very straightforward and upfront around the practice. And if that practice isn't going to be happening, we can't expect results. So I, I might inadvertently like up my my success rate because I'm I'm just I'm taking a lot of people who might not be ready to do the treatment and just saying, you know what, that's okay. It's not the time right now. I get that. I understand mm -hmm. that. If it ever becomes the time, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. So get in touch. Right. Like that. That's also like that kind of reminds you of something where you're basically setting the baseline hope low. You're setting the bar low yeah. because you have to and because you have to manage hope and expectations. But like, it, it almost seems like there's two things that, that happen with people, especially they'll think medication will cure it. Like they keep trying new medications until one cures it, which is never going to happen. Yeah. And then the second thing is um, they wait for adulthood and adulthood is going to be this glorious time where it's going to be mm -hmm. more ticks and it's all good, but that's so rare. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, do these tick busters turn into ticks? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, often not. Um, but the truth is they can, which is the mm -hmm. big reason that we push for the, it needs to be less obvious, less uncomfortable than whatever the tick is, because mm -hmm. um, sometimes it can. And so we got to be really careful around that. Uh, but we never know. So, is, is, that, is that like an example of a tick buster, like uh, snapping an elastic band on your wrist or something like that? Like what's an example? Of yeah. Um, let me give you a couple. I can give you a couple. Um, so, okay. Let's, uh, you know, let's take like, you know, one might be like something like turning your head to the right, um, 
let's say that's a tick, right? And I've worked with some people where that's what it is, right? Something yeah, like I, I, yeah, I have like, we do the neck ones a lot of this. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So like uh, a tick buster for that would be something like- Shoulders. Hold your shoulders down, kind of keep up those muscles in your neck, kind of here, somewhat tense, hold it back, and then follow the rules, right? Do that for 30 seconds, it's less noticeable, less obvious. Um, something, oh, the other rule, like you should be able to do it pretty much anywhere you're at, right? So you don't want to give someone a tick buster if they can only do it in certain situations, like sitting on your it Makes hands, sense. Right, because you wouldn't be able to sit on your hands if you're writing a test or having a conversation with yeah. someone. Something like that. So that might be one for the next one. And then, so you practice that and then practice, practice, practice. And eventually what should happen is that urge should be less obvious, more manageable. The first few times when people do this often is like the worst thing ever, right? I'm sure the two of you know, like sometimes if you're trying to suppress certain ticks, it's just that build up of tension and discomfort mm -hmm. what I hear can go through the roof, which is another reason why motivation for treatment has to be high because I'm asking people to put themselves in discomfort, right? And practice doing the practice. Um, you know, let me give you a couple other ones. Um, okay, oh, without, sorry, sorry to interrupt, yeah, without, oh, without um, asking for medical advice, um, do you have any for <laughs> nail biting or nail picking? Like, because Ooh, that's my worst one, like, and I do it until my nails bleed and I don't know, I can't. Without I asking know. for any medical advice. I'm <laughs> Can I ask some medical, medical advice? advice. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give some general advice because, you know, you're not my patient. Um, so right. one of the interesting things about that is, you know, and it's tough thing, and I, you know, is that a tick or is it a, a habit? And the reason I say, and it's, and sometimes it can be both, right? I mean, I don't know. It's different for everyone. Um, sometimes it could be a tick. Um, oftentimes there are like um, repetitive uh, behaviors, right? That people do that in extremes can become other types of disorders like trichotillomania, hair pulling. Uh, skin picking, there's a whole bunch of them out there, right? So one of the things I always wonder when I see that, like, okay, well, is it a tick? And if it's a tick, okay, you can try the tick busters. But if not, um, there are other treatments that are very closely uh, linked to CBIT that are more habit reversal treatment. And that's what's called mm -hmm. HRT for short. That works more with repetitive habits like nail biting, skin picking, hair pulling. But it's hard though, because it could actually be both, right? You could have a tick that might be something like this, like hand up to the mouth, mm. and the habit that develops afterward could be biting, or I don't know. I, I'd probably have to have like more of a conversation to try to figure out, okay, which one is it? Right, it is. right, yeah. But what underlies both CBIT and the interventions we do for repetitive uh, behaviors um, is, is basically based on the same thing. It's all habit reversal training. So it's just training people to recognize the mm. urge, find some type of block or competing response, practice, practice, practice till it goes down. Sometimes there's other things that can be helpful there too. Um, it just depends on exactly what it is and what's going on. Sometimes that's also like with the habits, it can also be more emotional responses or they're amplified by emotions as well. So sometimes there has to be some work done to, okay, how do we kind of bring some of that emotional distress down on top of breaking the hat? So need, sorry if that was a long way <laughs> to do this. You need a professional that can guide you through it, it seems like. It's so complicated. Like there's mm -hmm. so many, there's so many intricacies. I had a tick buster when I, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but I created yeah. one when I was a kid. 
where I couldn't eat during during a part of my middle school because I would bite my tongue whenever there was food in my mouth. Mm. So I'd just bite my tongue, scrape my tongue all the time. And I, I, I kind of fixed it by tensing my neck, but doing like that. I would basically shrug oh, exactly yeah. and, and flex my neck muscles. So it would allow me to eat. So I, I inadvertently, like uh, really by necessity, created a, a tick buster. And I've actually, it's funny that you said, I've learned to do that throughout my life, but I haven't applied it to every tick. And maybe maybe after this, I'll, I'll try and address some, some of my more um, strenuous ticks. I have like almost a chronic right trap tightness um, from some stuff. And I feel like there's some, probably some things I could do to, to navigate that. That's interesting. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I do, um, when, I, when I do the seed at work, there's actually, it, excuse me, one of the manuals, there's a, you know, common ticks, common competing responses or tick busters. That's out there. So okay. when I work with oh, cool. my clients, I'm like, here, take this. Once they, they we're done doing the work, I'm like, you know, in the future, I'm always here, but you might want to, because ticks wax and wanes, they change over time. You know, another tick might come up and maybe you just want to figure out what the response is without having a broken appointment. Maybe take a look at that list and see, you know, okay, is there something on that list that might work for me? And I can, you know, pass that on to you. Um, I'd have to check if it's copyrighted. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. That's great. so cool, though. That'd be great if you could. And maybe if, if it's not uh, copyrighted, we can we could talk about it on an episode. We could go through that so that people could hear it. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, um, you know, like I said, I wasn't really, di I wasn't diagnosed until I was in um, second year university. And so my whole childhood, it was allergies or just cut it out what are you doing you know like it was very much ignored and I now I know after reading the science like that's why I probably still have it now and it didn't go away because it wasn't really embraced in the way that it should have been which is I'm not blaming anybody but I, I um, let me push back on you there Brandon because I don't think it goes away like that I well, don't think it just no goes but like away we said like we said like we said if it's embraced properly as you're growing up and you are able to um you know like take care of it and uh, facilitate the proper relationships to, mm -hmm. and, and advocate for yourself, all of those things that we've been talking about. I think then the, the statistically is when it might go down. Yeah. Like it, it, it's easier to manage later, yeah. but I think that now, um, and even when I was diagnosed, my ticks were uh, like, I haven't gotten any new ones. Uh, they've been, and, and they've kind of like some have dropped off, but mostly the ones that I had, uh, like they've just, they've really ingrained themselves in my life now. And that's just how I feel like this is just my, like I couldn't imagine my life without them yeah. at this point. And uh, you know, and that's the difference between like, you know, is this something that needs treatment or not, right? You're content with them. They don't interfere with anything, you know, good. But, well, it's you know. not to say that they don't interfere, but I just, I just couldn't like, uh, like the blinking, for example, like, I just feel like it happens so much in my day constantly that I just couldn't imagine yeah, well, it not being there. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I can understand that. Jimmy, how do you feel about that? Like, do you think that, like, what, uh, what do you think with, with not having threats, like, what would it feel like? I, I don't know. Oh, like, dude, I couldn't imagine. I thought about this. I've thought about this so many times. Like, like, well, my brain's kind of spinning now and I'm, and I'm actually doing it as, as we're having this conversation. I, one tick that has chronically bothered me has been a sniffle. And 
Um, I'm trying to think of, I feel like maybe if I just breathe deeply when I'm thinking about doing it, it'll, it'll help or something like that. But um, I can, you know, I've always wondered what it would feel like, but then my brain quickly circles back and says, it doesn't matter what it would feel like, cause it's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I, right. and then I just, I just like, you know, I, I remain in, in the world. of. So James, like you were saying before with um, like the habits versus the ticks, I wonder if it can get to a point where it's just, you know, as much as it is a tick, it's a habit too, right? Yeah. Like where I don't, like I have the ticks, but maybe my, I'm just so used to doing oh. it that it's just, it's also a habit too, right? I don't know. I haven't even thought of that. Yeah, well, and I think the line between the two is probably thinner than like, you know, us humans, we like to categorize things as this or that. And, you know, sometimes I don't know, right? like maybe it's a habit, maybe it's a tick. And I deal with that when I'm working with OCD sometimes, so I'm like, I, I don't know what that is. Like, is it a, a tick or an OCD compulsion around having to touch something a certain amount of times, right? Like, mm -hmm. we get messy. Um, so there's not always a clear answer. Um, fortunately, most of the stuff I do when I'm helping people work with them, it's a similar process, even if I can't be 100% sure if it's a tick or a habit or it's an OCD type thing. So would you say that the, the goal um, when you're treating someone is like comfort, basically? Yeah, I, I guess how I think of it and, um, you know, I, how I think of it is it's a skill that can be learned and used that can improve quality of life and give people more of a sense of control over some of their tics, kind of in the best case scenario, right? I think that's the most we can hope on it. But I, I would say anyone that's gone through it, like, can usually understand the concept and feel like they have some degree more of control over their ticks. It might not be, you know, great control or amazing, or it may not be at that, you know, 50% rate, which is like, you know, significant improvements. But I often think there's a feeling of control over it. And even if that, like, you know, that part of the treatment doesn't work, at least we've got everything before. We've got the education, we've got the advocacy. Mm -hmm. People are aware of how environments can affect their ticks and the, how they might be able to tweak their environment in certain situations to make it more manageable. Um, so, and I think that goes a long way. Um, Jimmy, I mean, you mentioned that idea of like, you know, at some point there also has to be some acceptance around it, right? And, and that's a hard thing to kind of, to accept that your body is gonna be doing things you don't want it to do for the rest of your life. And, and so, you know, even if I do the work and there's not much control in the takes, like that's the other part I try to help people, you know, grapple with. And it's a hard thing to do, but, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's still all of everything else in life that are that's accessible, right? Relationships, beautiful mm -hmm. sunsets at night, you know, all the finer <laughs> things in life, right? Those things are still there. And there could be life. a whole lot of worse things that could happen to you than yeah. Tourette's. And like I, that, Brandon talks about this a lot too. Like, mm -hmm. um, I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder here, Brandon, but I know you, you talk a lot about um, it just being. <laughs> It is thing. what it is. Like it's yeah. it's a thing. It's not it's not the end of the world. You're you're gonna make it happen. You're, you gotta live, and and you owe it to yourself to, to just yeah. And, J and James, you touched on it even right at the beginning, where sometimes it's worse for the other people around than it is for the actual person because maybe if somebody sees me doing this or you know doing whatever, they might think that it's painful or they might think that it's it's embarrassing them because they're with me or something, but 
in, in my mind, you know, it doesn't hurt and, it, and I don't think about it. It actually feels good sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like it's relief. It's, it, to me, it, it, it could sometimes be that um, it's, it's worse for the other people looking in where like looking in at me. So when I think about it, yeah, it's just to me, it's, yeah, it's important to embrace it and to respect it. But then at the same time, for other people, uh, like it could just be more uncomfortable for them because of what they think I'm experiencing that mm -hmm. I'm actually not experiencing. So that's, it's, it's hard to explain that where, um, you know, it's sometimes worse for, it's, it's actually worse for other people than it is for me. And, and that's hard to get across. Wow. Yeah. And I, I've heard that from a lot of people I work with. And, you know, sometimes it means deep, like having those conversations with their loved ones or people that are around them. Yeah, which it's horrible. It shouldn't be, you know, someone's role to tell other people, look, you don't have to worry about me because I have this. But I don't know if there's much of an but, other option but, out there. But then, of course, like, it's not always, it's not like it's just, uh, you know, always great. And there are, and, and Jimmy and I always like to talk about how our experiences aren't reflective of everybody's. And we are maybe lucky that our, uh, the severity that we experience is only what it is. And there are people that, can't go through their life with their ticks because they're so severe and yeah. they can't they actually can't lead a, a, a life like we do um and that you know it's hard for us to speak on that and if i saw somebody like that too i would think the same thing so yeah well and we have a long way to go there too um you know because I, I think with, when the behavioral interventions that they'll be able eventually to take people further probably than we're, we're at now because we're still improving, refining things. Um, but, you know, eventually we're gonna have to, there has to be other interventions that we start to look at. And, you know, fortunately now there is a lot more money going into research for other interventions, some of them pharmacological, some of the biofeedback um, that's out there, deep brain stimulation. Like, I mean, I don't know. I've heard of the deep brain stimulation, but yeah. Yeah, which I mean, it's scary um, as an idea of like, Put electrodes in your brain and shock it. Yeah, mm. but there was—I don't know if it's still up. A couple of years back, there's an amazing YouTube video of really, really severe Tourette syndrome, and it showed him. He had he had the deep brain stimulation electrodes put in, and it showed him with and without that switched on, and it was really? shocking. Yeah, it was shocking to me the difference. You know, a, a man that couldn't walk ten steps—well, could, but it would probably take him fifteen minutes. To a man that could walk perfectly normal, and you could you could notice like barely a couple of ticks coming out, but mm -hmm. you know, and it, so that blew my mind. Like, wow, like you know, for those people that are really severe, like you know, there there's still so much more we can figure out and learn, mm -hmm. and you know, it probably won't happen in my lifetime, but you know, there there is some hope for some of those things that can. Mm -hmm. well, hopefully, it does. I mean, hopefully, it happens soon. But um, Jimmy, do you have any more questions before I? Ask I do. You? Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got one just in the, while we're on this topic. Uh, first of all, I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll, we'll, we'll end in the next 10, 15 minutes here. But um, have, you, have you encountered anyone who can't control their tics at all? Zero control? Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard to think to say zero control, maybe close to zero control. So in mm -hmm. that kind of like top bracket in terms of severity and frequency, like there's some individuals who are constantly ticked without reprieve for even like half a second um and 
you know, I mean, that that's where I see things like that deep brain stimulation of pay. Like, I would consider that if it was me. Like, I don't like the idea of having electrodes stuck in my brain, but if I literally you know, could not walk 10 steps and use a washroom on my own independently, I go for the electrodes I think in my brain. Yeah. <clears throat> Anything that you need to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, that does exist. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, we talked about we see some of the more extreme examples in the media. But unfortunately, people with those more severe tics, we probably wouldn't see them out in public because A, they find it too debilitating, and B, it's much safer for them, for them not to leave the house. And if that's mm -hmm. sad, it's terrible, it shouldn't be that way. But sometimes that's that's their own choice given what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Brandon, I have I have two more, but why don't you go ahead, Kismar? No, no, you go, no, you go. Okay, so uh this is a more of a broad stroke question. There's two of them here, but they relate to each other. First one is, what do you see as the roadblocks? I guess they can come in a lot of different ways, so we'll keep it broad. But the roadblocks that that come that get in the way of people in improving their Tourette's. Yeah, um, I think it's sometimes like shame right just like oh if i acknowledge this then i or you know i'm ashamed of this so it's easier just to not acknowledge it right so that can happen sometimes and that can be a big roadblock um i think when it comes to all the work i do i mean sometimes it's just uh you know putting the work in which can be hard right like as i said i'm when i ask people to do the receive it, I'm asking them to be really uncomfortable, purposely be uncomfortable, do it for, you know, hours a week, right? It's yeah. a, tall, a tall order. So I get that. For some people, it's not the right, right fit. Um, and then if, if, we're, if we're also perfectly honest, the fact is the, probably the biggest barrier is lack of access, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm in private practice, so people have to pay to see me most of the time. And I hate mm -hmm. that about my job, but I, I don't have another option. Um, yeah. You know, Chio has yeah. two psychologists that can do uh, Tourette work right now in, in that setting. It's usually very time limited because they have, you know, uh, requirements in terms of how long they can see people. Um, there's one other person in private practice here in Ottawa. And so financial part is it's big, right? I mean, people can see me, but like even me, right? People are paying out of pocket or maybe they have insurance to see me. Um, my wait list is like seven months long. Right? So even if someone wants to see me, the soonest I could possibly see them is probably in seven months for regular sessions. And that's terrible. Yeah. Um, so that, that's yeah, that seems like a big barrier, actually. That, yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up, too, because it it seems like I don't I am mean, yeah, it seems like um, it would be so much more helpful if OHIP or something could help out with that. Um, and there's literally no like the work I do could be done by a nurse, right? Which could fall into the medical kind of realm and be potentially covered by old. Like there are avenues to do it. Um, we just haven't done it. Um, you know, the best I've been able to do is train other psychologists um, so far, but I'm hoping to take it further than that in the future. Um, the other thing I really want to do, or kind of like the middle ground I found, is I, I supervise psychology students from the University of Ottawa. And so at least when I work with them, you know, it's not free, but I can do discounted rates for people mm -hmm. that are looking for service for that. What a great way Well, to do even it. by by you training other psychologists, um, that you know, essentially like does open up access to people like yeah, to get, that's to get a giant treatment, impact. right? Yeah. 
we'll get there. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, discount that work to, yeah. Like it seems like you're doing a really great job. I'm uh, trying. My next step is I'm going to try to convince the profs at the University of Ottawa to let me do a lecture with all their PhD students as well. On, you know, this is what Tourette's is. This is how it can be treated. And just even at that level, you know, to me, that would be a big deal. If everyone, every psychologist graduating University of Ottawa, which is about 12 a year, knew about Tourette's, knew what interventions were out there, that'd be massive, right? And Absolutely. Sure that that would be, that'd be huge. That'd be huge. Like, I'm yeah. sure that there's lectures on depression and anxiety and all the comorbidities, right? So yeah. why not? Why I'm not that? Right. I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. We'll get there, I think. Jimmy, that's, do you have great. anything else? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the polar opposite of what I just asked you. So what do you find leads to the most success in the people or the parents or the families or the communities? Yeah. the people that get that find that 50 to 75 percent tick improvement yeah so i mean that's really interesting um one thing just on the surface like, even before they walk in the treatment one thing that can make a big difference is how how good their urge awareness is just to begin with right how good are people actually catching those urges recognizing those urges that's part of the training and part of what can happen is if people really can't catch that urge then it's really hard to do the tick buster, right? Because if you don't know the urge, you don't know when to do the tick buster. So catching yeah. that urge is kind of big. So that's one of the predictors. Um, the other one is that motivation, which is why I do that kind of scaling question. Because um, if that's low, not too likely um, to be successful. And then really putting the practice in. Now, I guess the other thing is, you know, having parents on board for when I'm working with kids. Usually, when when I do see that. You do need a parent to be working with the child, to be encouraging, uh, be rewarding, all of that. So that has to happen. Um, and to a certain extent, both parents should probably, well, ideally would be on board, right? There's one parent that's super motivated to help the kid, and the other one's, you know, giving them heck every time they have a tick. Well, that, that's not going to work very well. Mm -hmm. right? It's probably not going to work at all. So there needs to be, ideally, parents being on board with it. Um, yeah, so I think those are the big ones, right? Being aware of the urge, being able and willing to put the work in, and having good support people with them to, to get them through. 100%. That's great. I mean, so, there's some other stuff out there, like how severe the ticks are and how numerous, of course, like you know, more severe ticks are, you know, if people have tons of ticks, they're really severe. It's even less helpful than, you know, for people with mild to moderate ticks. Mm -hmm. so, um, that's right. So, so I guess, um, what, I guess to Jimmy, do you have anything else? Like, I just want to finish off with, uh, James. I just want to ask like what, how you would, um, you know, what you would, what advice, general advice or, um, you know, some sort of motivation that you could offer to anybody listening to this episode that either, um, is living with Tourette syndrome or, you know, has a child or a friend that is, like what, what would be your words of uh, advice or empowerment to, to, to yeah. end with? Well, I, I think part, a big thing that I really think about is, you know, sometimes I will draw like a pie chart with people I work with and just to ask them about the different parts of their life. And part of that slice of that pie might be Tourette's, right? 
And so the reason I do that is just to show like that that's a slice, right? That that's that's this much of all of that around you, right? And so to me, that's really important because when it comes to things we can't change, I mean, really, we don't have much of an option, right? We can struggle against them, hate them, get really angry and frustrated that we can't change certain things about ourselves, or we can try, and it's a tall order, but we can try to, you know, accept the fact that, you know, there are things about ourselves that we have no control over and won't change. And if we can kind of get to that point, sometimes there's some relief. Right? So as opposed to you know, getting into this big battle with whatever it is, sometimes the solution is trying to get to a place of being accepting around it. So I, I, I keep that in mind because sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, ticks aren't going to go away. Um, mm -hmm. They'll likely be there for the rest of your life. And then the only choice you have is what you do with the rest of your life. And, and how, how big of that slice of pie are you going to let your ticks be? And some people don't have a choice, right? There's really severe ticks. It's going to be a big but for most people, you know, it's just a small little part of that. Yeah, that's great. That's yes. great advice. I don't know if that sounds super cheesy, but no, no, that's really good. Really that's good. That's really good to, yeah. to decide. You get to decide um, how much of the pie you're going to give to this, um, to this, you know, I think we don't want to call it a disorder, this thing that yeah. just is there. It's just a part of us. And um, Jimmy, do you have anything else? Great way to end it, Doctor. Uh, thanks for coming on. Oh, for sure. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for your time. It's yeah, been great. no, gentlemen, like absolutely anytime. I'd be happy to come back. I love talking about this stuff. And we'll take you up on that. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, if there's anything or you have any thoughts about how I could be helpful with the Detroit community or getting word out there, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, and same with you. Me. Same with you, because you you know you encounter this stuff. Uh, yeah, you probably talk to more people with Tourette syndrome than we do. And you know we're we're kind of one sided, right? We just put it out there. We don't we don't talk back. Uh, get get people to talk back. So if uh, if there's anything that we can do uh, for you, let us know too. For sure. Well, I think you guys are doing it. Like uh, you know, when I heard about your podcast, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm glad there are people that you know trying to get people engaged and learning about this. So I think that'll go a really long way. So yeah, I appreciate what, what you guys are doing Thanks. as well. Thank you. No, no. Thanks. Another great episode in the books. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to share it. We have merchandise available in the form of t-shirts with lots planned for the future. You can head to Tourette.ca or Tourette.org to find your local chapter in the Canada or the United States. And you can email us at tiktokpodcast at gmail.com if you have any topics, comments, or questions for us to discuss. Thanks for listening.